wake up, wake up, from Jerusalem, Israel. This is from the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel. Providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. I'm very excited to have a special guest today, and I will admit this is during a very special time for the world during COVID-19, but I think the topics that my guest is going to discuss, uh, anyone in the business world, particularly here in Israel, will find very interesting. My guest today is Cindy Azulai, who is a partner at Cantor & Akko, a global corporate immigration firm based in Ramat Gan, Israel. With 20 years experience, she leads the firm's U.S. department, which focuses on employment, family, and consular issues. The department has particular expertise in obtaining treaty trader slash investor work visas for Israeli companies and identifying and implementing visa options for startups, small business, as well as publicly traded organizations. Welcome, Cindy. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. Yes, it's a very interesting time for all of us, you, and, and anyone listening to this. Uh, but I think we're going to, uh, I think through talking to you, uh, you have a lot of knowledge, and I think it, my listeners will find it very interesting. Let, let me start with something right on topic, having to do with the times we're living in. Uh, the world has gone through drastic change as it, as it confronts COVID-19. Uh, how has your work with regard to your clients gaining entry into the U.S. changed during this time? You know, it's an interesting question. I think that the better um, answer to that is they're, they're not gaining entry at this time. Um, and so what we've been having to do is to look at a way, those that are already in the United States, how can we preserve their status so that they remain in the U.S. sort of legally um, because they can't leave? And then because um, it's very difficult, there are no visas being issued presently. As, as, as everyone knows, the U.S. Embassy in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem are not issuing visas so that um, there isn't any way to go to the U.S. to begin working. So it's sort of a, it's a barrier. Um, and until um, the borders are opened, uh, I think that, that we're going to have to be dealing at it from you know, two parts of the world. Um, we'll get you ready to go when the border opens, and we'll preserve your status while you're in the U.S. Okay, that, that's uh, very interesting. I, we all know there's almost no flights. I think United at the moment is the only carrier even flying to the U.S., but uh, um, it's very interesting how, how things have been so cut back. It's also been reported, uh, and obviously this is connected to my first question, that the U.S. is limiting the issuance of green cards. But can an Israeli spouse married to a U.S. citizen still apply for a green card in terms of this sort of new policy? Well, you know what, it, it was a, an executive order. This is something that this present administration uses when they can't get their way. Um, I'll try to, to remain um, apolitical, but sometimes I can't. Um, and so what happened, what's been um, even on, on the agenda for, um, for this administration is to eliminate something called chain migration. It's okay if your spouse wants to get a green card, but your parents or your brother or your sister, the, sort of like the next level, we're uh-huh. going to put up some walls so that you can't. So this is the first time we've seen it actually taken sort of an effect, or it's kind of come out. It's nothing new. It's not a surprise. It was on the list of things I'd like to cut, um, according to the president. But so what this means, though, is that it doesn't affect 
um, a U.S. citizen who is married to an Israeli. Um, so it doesn't affect that Israeli spouse. The, they can continue with the green card process. Um, it, it, that's an exception to this particular um, proclamation. And, you know, the proclamation was given 60 days, and so we're, we don't know what's going to happen at that 60-day period. Um, we don't know if this was sort of like a, a flag to say, hey, look what, what's going to come next. Uh, but so for right now, that, that, that is probably the only thing. It isn't, you know, does not have an effect. But if you um, are married to a green card holder, if you're an Israeli married to a green card holder, that there is a uh, hold on that, on continuing to process that visa if you're outside the U.S. Um, also, if, you know, if you're a parent or if you're a brother or sister and you were ready to process at the embassy here, so they're stopping that, of course, because the embassy is not even open, so it's kind of... Right. But if you're in the U.S. and you're in those processes, it doesn't affect you. So, you know, it's limited. It was, I think it was very frightening the way the press picked it up. And, and everybody didn't know who it affected. Right, right. Um, you know, is it me? Is it me? We are concerned that there's going to be more coming. So let's stay tuned. <laughs> all, right, all right. So this question is, again, either let's call it the pre-corona or post-corona, whenever that will be. There seems to be no end to Israelis wanting to travel to the U.S. Uh, before or after what's coming up, which visa have you found is the most challenging to get these days, a work visa or a tourist visa? Huh. Wow. I don't think you can. You can't lump it. It depends on who you're talking about. Okay. So, okay. so let's say, um, you know, like my son, you know, you're right after the Army. They're looking for certain things if you're trying to get a, a tra- tourist visa. And certainly what they're looking for is um, you have this short-term travel planned um, and you have the ability to finance it. They were issuing on that basis. Um, they may not again. So they're still going for the young, uh, not yet professional, not yet graduated from school. Right. Mm-hmm. It's still difficult to get. It's also difficult to get if you have any kind of uh, drug DUI uh, convictions in the past. Mm-hmm. So those mm-hmm. are things that, you know, so it depends on who your person is. And in terms of the work visas in general, I think that we, we are finding all, all practice, it's not just Israelis, uh, it's the whole world, that they've elevated their types of standards of review. So you kind of have to be ready to kind of give them what new information they're going to be looking for. So it's more more challenging, and I think it's more time-consuming to get an employment visa, regardless of the category, and you just have to be aware of what they're looking for. Now, we have many clients in our practice who have received green cards after being in the U.S. for a few years. Uh, Ultimately, many of these people do return to Israel, but they want to retain those green cards in order to have an easier entry into the U.S. when they come for a visit or a future business trip. What would be your advice to these people? Well, you know, it's funny because this is is my favorite story. Um, we, We often have people come in the office and say, well, you know, I've had a green card for 30 years, but I've never lived there. Um, uh-huh. And so I'd say maybe 10 years ago, okay, you could have gotten away with that because then people would say, but I go in once a year and I stay for a week. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's, you gotta, you got to take your mindset out and, and you have to be careful about that. So what's happening is they can see when you're entering when you were last in the United States. And so what you don't want to have happen is to have someone take away your green card because you try to go in once a year because then you, you won't get a B visa either at the embassy and they'll give you a hard time. So what you want to do is be in control. If you don't live in the U.S. and you use this document to travel once a year, twice a year, mm-hmm. you should go through a formal process of returning it. Because, and I think you could tell better than I, um, you may be still subject to tax if you haven't actually, you know, turned right. this in. Right. Of course. Yes. Yes. Um, 
and also, you know, if if it comes push comes to shove and they, you know, you're you're filing as a non non-resident, you don't live in the United States anymore. You should not be traveling on that green card. So it's not it's not designed to let it, it'd be a whole lot easier if the grandkids live in the States to travel on a B visa once a year rather than to worry each time you go in whether someone's going to take the green card away from you. So you really need to be um, smarter about this. Um, there's also something called a reentry permit. For those people who don't live in the U.S. now but maybe they want to you know, live in the U.S. again in a year or two, you can freeze the green card, but you need to file for that one when you're in the U.S., but that makes it so you have two years of not worrying about when you come back and forth. So that would be the recommendation. But if you don't live there, it's not the same world. You should get rid of this green card. So ju- just the, again, because I think this is many Israelis' biggest nightmare, that right. they, they, w- they would arrive at Kennedy and they're asked the standard questions and then, whoop, the the, the uh, you know the border guard takes that green card away. Do right. Those things have those things happen. Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh-huh. Um, you know what they might do um, is that firstly they'll say, "Okay, I'm going to let you in this time, but it's the last time." Mm-hmm. And so you know what? When they say that, they mean it because so that information goes into the computer. And so the next time you go in, they're not going to be so nice because they read these notes. Um, I think only if you go in after that will they actually physically take it. If they physically take it from you, your chances of going to the embassy afterwards and saying, hey, I don't plan on going to the U.S. and, and staying and getting a B visa are really minimal. Wow. And they have changed the process for, for you turn in the, um, the green card. You don't go to the embassy any longer. You turn it in by mail. And so you need to do that in advance of applying for the B visa you know, and show proof that you filed it. But that that process changed a few months ago, and it's something you really want to do um, in advance of traveling. Also, too, even once you get a B visa and you're going into the U.S., they still may stop and question you as to, hey, you know, didn't you have a green card? Where do you really live now? Oh, interesting. So, and I know Israelis don't like to do this. Oh, I don't want to give it up. The kids are in the U.S. Right, but, hey, of course. It, yeah. You know? and, and, but you're, what you're saying, and we see it in our work as well, in the digital age, this information is uh, so accessible uh, right. instantaneously, really, you know. They know everything about us. It's so. true. Now, many Israelis wish to study in the U.S., particularly for advanced academic degrees. But my question is, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? In other words, how do you get accepted to a program if you don't have a student visa? The school itself, let's say the school that you pick, yes. would be responsible for applying for your visa type. Ah, and so okay. the student, the, the visas that you could, be, you could get as a student are, are F or J. Mm-hmm. And so then, the, but the schools are very often limited, especially for advanced programs. But the J visa, most people like to get because it gives your spouse, your spouse can apply for work authorization. On an F visa, your spouse doesn't have anything to do but come with you. So that's the, the difference. But the school kind of, it depends on what the school has available and, and also what's available for that type of study, that level of study. Um, so you need the visa. So would you would you say that if someone gets accepted to you know one of the good schools in a in a master's or PhD that the that the school will probably help them be able to get that visa? Yeah, no, see, then it's two parts. If they get accepted and they have the and they work out the financial situation, right. they'll get um, documentation that they would then have to take to the embassy, and then they need to be prepared to interview ah, at the embassy. Okay. So. 
the school, Columbia may want you, but the embassy may not want you. (laughs) So, um, you know, and I I think that as long as you can show um, when you apply for a student visa that it's a full-time academic program, they're not big on these part-time English classes. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's a full-time academic program, um, and you have the ability or the school has the ability, they want to show what your financial situation is so that you can prove that you are able to support yourself or the family plus pay tuition. So that's where the focus of the interview is now. Um, And certainly you have to be able to speak English. So you can do it, but yeah, it's not something I want to be in the U.S., so let me go find some kind of program. Gotcha. But it is obviously, you know, just see it to many people. After they, generally after they get their first degree, um, you know, the U.S. is a very popular destination, obviously. Um, can, can you tell my listeners, uh, we see this in our practice, particularly with our uh, clients who work in high tech, generally we see them getting L visas. Particularly, my question is for, for spouses of these employees who travel to the U.S. on an L-1. What is the spouse eligible for and how long uh, do they have to wait to get a visa where they can also work? That's been uh, an issue with this administration because all these processes have become, um, have slowed down. So um, an L visa, a spouse, uh, a dependent spouse, and and and, and it lets, only lets the spouse apply for something called work authorization once you're all physically in the U.S. It's a separate application. It's a process that once you have it, you can get a Social Security number that lets that's valid for employment. However, what's happened is it's taking, I think, about five, it was taking about five months wow. to get that work authorization. So for, whereas in the past, it was taking about five weeks, you know, mm-hmm. five to seven weeks. Um, so five months is a sometimes that's a that's a factor in the relocation that the, the you know what am I going to do for that period of right. time? Right, yeah, that five months is a long period of time. Yes, right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the strategies we sometimes look at is let's say sometimes people will be looking, um, you know, they'll go for the for a pre trip to you know look for houses and look for schools. Um, we might recommend at that point that they at least put the application in for this because it starts the clock running. Huh. Interesting. Um, and so sometimes there's a there's a way to play around with the, the timing a little bit because you know maybe the move's not going to happen for another two three months and you haven't lost that waiting time. Many of our clients who ha- have grandchildren that are born in Israel and and wish for them to have U.S. citizenship, even though at least one of the parents of this child is not a U.S. citizen. How, how does one go about the process of getting U.S. citizenship for their grandchildren? As long as one of the parents is American, yes, and the grandparent lived in the United States for at least five years, two of which were after the age of fourteen, mm-hmm. and the, and you have documents that can prove it. That's the key factor. And, you know, some people are great at keeping every piece of paper they've ever had, and some people are, I have nothing. Um, We have seen recently that um, they really want to see evidence of the five years um, on the ground in the United States. We recently had a request, well, there's no address on that academic transcript. So I can't tell if that was just a, you know, a new trend or this was just this one officer. Um, but normally, um, this particular process, it gets submitted to the United States. It can take anywhere from about seven to, to nine months. And then the U.S. citizen parent and the children have to fly to the U.S. to, a, to have a, like a swearing-in ceremony, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And the location is, is something you can pick. Um, 
you know, years ago used to say, hey, you know, everybody go to Albany or everybody go to St. Albans, Vermont, because it's faster. Yeah, it's not like that anymore. Um, But you can try to pick a location that might be convenient for you. Full disclosure, I have been through this process with three, three of my grandchildren. Um, how, how long in advance these that you say things have changed? Does one need to plan this trip? It, you know what? It isn't a kind of trip that works for you. So let's say I'd, you know it's right. really good for us. We're going to file today because we'd like to go in August. Um, it's mm-hmm. not. It doesn't work for you. Maybe you'll go at Christmas then. Um, you know, it's not something where you can. The only time you can rush it is if you have a grandchild that's going to turn eighteen within the next few months. It has to. The process has to be finished before the child turns 18. You know, it's, it's better to do it sooner, only it's not that this isn't something that's going to change. I mean, this type of regulation isn't up for... Um, right, right. But in terms of just, just the, you know, planning a year in advance, six months... That's a good, a year in advance. Okay, so again, since I'm asking probably as a representative of many uh, people in my situation, and and in light of what you've shared with us about how this administration has changed some of the policies, um, let's suppose someone has already gotten citizenship. In other words, they've proven it to, to the embassy um, that they lived the five years and they lived the two years after age 14, and now a different child has another grandchild. Do they have to start over with the processing, or does the U.S. Embassy say, oh, we've already given to these based on this grandparent? It's it's funny because um, so we've seen this right now. We did three children in the same family, and now we're doing the the last child, um, and they have questioned the same evidence that we submitted for the other three. Wow, wow. So uh, okay. let's say it's a U.S. citizen parent who has the five years, and they go to the embassy to get the, right. it's called a consular report of birth abroad. That's when the parent lived in the U.S. for five years. We've seen as well that they want, you still have to prove it all again. You can't go in there and say, hey, but you approved it for my first child. Ah, they hate okay, that. Okay, all right. <laughs> they really uh, okay, hate well, that. Well, uh, <laughs> believe me, this is a relevant uh, question and a very, very helpful answer. All right, I, I'm, I'm going to wrap up with, with a, just a question. Um, we've periodically heard that the U.S. will allow Israel into their visa waiver program. Can you explain how this program works and if Israelis might be soon eligible? It's a process by which you would not have to get a visa. Everyone says that, oh, I don't have a visa. It's for entry to the U.S. in a different way, and you get in based on your passport. However, if for some reason that you overstay or you have any kind of criminal record, you still have to go for a visa. Mm-hmm. The thing about this this particular visa that hasn't the visa waiver that hasn't been issued um, to Israel, there are a lot of different rumors. But what happens is that the denial rate has to go be, below a certain percentage, and it never does. Mm-hmm. And and part of it, and what we were always told, um, was that it's security issues as well. So it's not the kind of thing that is on anybody's table to have happen in the near future. It's not even something that anyone um, that you would find um, has been in the news and we need to just wait for it. I wouldn't hold my breath on it. Every once in a while there's a newspaper article and someone's quoted and saying it's happening. Nah. uh -uh. Uh (laughs) All right. I just feel like I've just hit the tip of the iceberg. There's so many issues and sub-issues here. But if any of my listeners want to know more, first of all, to contact you or about the firm, could you give us a little contact information? Oh, sure. You know, um, my email is Cindy, C-I-N-D-Y, Strudel, K like kangaroo, T like Tom, A like apple, legal.com. 
Well, Cindy, thank you. This has been very helpful, and I think uh, you know once the embassy and the consulate reopen, uh, I, I sense you're going to be very busy. You know, I hope to talk to you uh, in times where we don't have this hanging over our head. But but I really appreciate, and I, I speak also on behalf of my listeners. I think this is very valuable information you've shared today. Oh, my pleasure, and stay healthy. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein and Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn. 